Mini-episode 1434 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at Sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late-night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini, episode 1434. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here with one of our longtime FDH Lounge dignitaries and a good friend from the Queen's Chronicle, uh, my good buddy Lloyd Carroll, coming on to talk about year one of the Biden administration. Uh, Lloyd was on a segment that we did right about the time that uh, the administration started. He was on a segment, a very good one that we did with uh, author uh, William Cohen, the three of us talking about that and everything that, uh, that was to come. But, uh, you know, Lloyd, just to kind of get it started here a little bit, uh, I, I was thinking to myself, the last year has given uh, somebody, uh, I believe, also from Queens. Uh, isn't Billy Joel from Queens? Uh, uh, he's, from, uh, he's from nearby. Okay, all right. I think we've... He's got enough material, I think, to write a sequel to We Didn't Start the Fire. You know, inflation, Afghanistan, Omicron, violent crime, southern border, Senate stalemate, Putin's taking Ukraine. <laughs> Very good, Rick. I, uh, I'm going to have to pitch that one to Billy. I'll give him your phone number. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So, you know, it's one of these things where if we don't laugh, we're going to cry, right? I mean, things are not good right now, but, uh, yeah, just the, the sheer magnitude of everything that is going sideways right now is something where, not to be prisoner of the moment, Lloyd, but you don't see that too many times in this country to have so many things going so dire. You know, Rick, I'll agree and disagree, but I'm uh, going to show my age here. Uh, I think things were worse in 1979, that last year sure. of the Carter administration. Uh, it seemed like with the Iranians holding our guys hostage, uh, inflation was out of control. It just seemed like that was the... That was the worst time I can remember. You know, interest rates were like 14%. I wish I could have looked in my, my CDs for that. I mean, compact this, but certificates of deposit. Why well, should have taken like 40 years at 14%. Back then, that was a way to it's going to go up to 20% next week. Yeah. So I think that was actually the worst time. Well, and here's the thing. I'm glad you brought that up, Lloyd, because for all of the thing a year ago of, and it's been a thing where, and again, while I don't agree with uh, much of uh, what happened during his presidency, Jimmy Carter, I will admit, I think has been a pretty admirable post-president, although I think some of his foreign meddling from time to time when he's undermined administrations, maybe he's not been so great. But it's so funny that he's become so revered for the post-presidency that the Bidens a year ago felt comfortable going down to Plains and Joe Biden be like, hey, remember, I endorsed Jimmy Carter in 76 well, these are comparisons a year later that are not looking so good because Joe Biden, if we think back, he started his political career in the U.S. Senate when Richard Nixon was still president. Nixon, then Ford, then Carter, the through line of their presidencies, there wasn't many things that connected them, but the through line was inflation, the brutal inflation that peaked in the late 70s, but it started off being bad under Nixon and it was bad under Ford. Remember the whip inflation now? Uh, oh, 76, yeah. So it's a thing where 
Joe Biden, this is one of the things here, and, and for as much as people carped about the neoliberalism of Clinton and Obama when they were president, Biden, following this pull to the left, it's a thing where he will find himself with his political career being bracketed by the inflation of those days and the worst inflation ever since, which is the inflation of right now. Sure. Now, the one thing I do believe that Biden can point to is, and even though people are going to, to buy that, is the fact we were in this pandemic for so long, nobody was spending any money. Yep. And now suddenly, hey, you know, we can make an argument. We're optimistic. The future's so bright, we got to wear shade. Hey, we're going to spend. We've saved all this money. We're kind of staying in the house. We deny ourselves. We want to travel. We want to do X, Y, and Z. We want to get that stuff. And there is, uh, you know, that, that supply chain lag. We knew this was going to happen eventually. Uh, so, I, you know, again, I'm not trying to be an apologist for Biden, but try to at least give the devil's kind of the, uh, the devil's attitude here, uh, devil's advocate, just try to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, as far as that goes. But you're right. We're gonna, he's going to have to do something. We can't have gas prices going to four bucks a gallon. People aren't going to want to hear that. Yeah, and there is something I'm going to bring up here, and this is going to be very convenient because I'm going to pat myself on the back for an observation I made that has turned out to be true. And uh, somebody that I was hoping could join us for our discussion uh, tonight here, uh, he wasn't able to, but I hope to get him on at some point soon here, a good friend of the show, Colin Delaney, the proprietor of ePolitics.com. Colin being a left-of-center guy, so he and I always have some fun discussions here. And I countered him, I think this was late in the 2020 campaign, when he was talking about, oh, Biden's always been a moderate, Biden's always been really more of a centrist, and I said, no, wrong. Joe Biden has always been somebody who has followed the magnetic pole, the center of gravity of the Democratic Party. He came up post-60s, sort of fear. It was the age of Nixon when he first got elected. So how do I become a Democrat in the age of Nixon and later the age of Reagan? So, you know, tough on crime and this and that and whatever. Joe Biden was where he thought he needed to be at any given point in time. And, And that's the thing where the center of gravity in the 2010s uh, as the younger part of the Democratic Party uh, grew disillusioned with Obama, felt that they'd been sold a pig in a poke, and you know what? I think they kind of were, because Obama was running as a change candidate against Hillary Clinton, and again, he was a, a neoliberal in the end, much like Bill Clinton. Post-Obama, it was the restlessness here, Bernie Sanders in both cycles. Bernie Sanders was the candidate that captured the hearts and minds in the Democratic Party, and the opposition to him was splintered. And Joe Biden likes to say, oh, I'm not Bernie Sanders. He just said it again the other day. I'm not Bernie Sanders. I'm a mainstream guy, whatever. But he is following the pull of AOC and everybody else on there. He's doing what he's always done. It looks like he's veered to the left uh, suddenly in the last year or two, and he has. But he's being consistent with the Joe Biden that's always been there, which is, like I said, being sucked to wherever the center of gravity in the party is. Well, I'm glad you said the center of gravity in the party. Now, I'm not a Democrat, so uh, I'm going to say the center of gravity for the general electorate, though, is not as far from the center of gravity in the Democratic Party. Yes. And it's funny, when I think about progressives, uh, now I'm going to say it's funny, you're in Ohio, so this is the exception to the rule. The only progressive that I can ever name that is one in a purple slash red air of state statewide is uh is your senator from yeah. the state of ohio 
So let's go Eric Brown. He's the only one I could ever name that is a progressive who has won in a competitive area. Yeah. When you talk about progressives like AOC, she can only win in the bluest of districts. Crayola wishes they come with a crayon as blue as AOC's district. Right. And that's the thing. And that the entire party... Uh, is not there, the rank and file. And that's the thing, that Biden was able to get uh, elected, um, more to the point, nominated when he was nominated by the Democratic Party, because again, the establishment pulled together. And again, the the interesting thing is here, when you look at the disparate interest groups of the party, uh, basically the black vote uh, is, is certainly a little bit more conservative, or at least moderate, than some of the far-out, woke white people, and that's what helped Joe Biden in South Carolina. Jim Clyburn uh, kind of pulled him over the finish line by saying, Joe Biden's a mainstream guy, Joe Biden's going to fight for us, as opposed to any of the woke issues and everything like that. I mean, Clyburn wasn't running as anti-woke, but you know what I mean. It was the whole thing of, you know, he's going to be, you know, a blue-collar candidate, a bread-and-butter issues kind of a guy. And that was how Biden got the nomination. But to me, and I, I almost think the before and after period of the Biden administration came about six months before the election, because I think so much of the calculations went out the window with the George Floyd stuff, because you can trace it back. It's the before and after. Amy Klobuchar might be vice president today, if not for that. She's much more in line with what Biden wanted to do. I think as far as as a candidate there, she took herself out of the running because she knew at that point as a white lady, uh, much less somebody who'd been a prosecutor in Minnesota, it wasn't going to fly. But uh, Biden, and I tell you, it looked like a smart calculation at the time because the major institutions in this country, the corporations and everything like that, everybody is immediately apologizing for every offense that they'd ever committed, imagined or otherwise. And it looked like that's where the country was, but there was a backlash coming and Biden's on the wrong side of that backlash, and that's what's fueling a lot of this stuff right now. I think inflation and pocketbook issues are more to blame uh, for, for where he's at than anything else. Afghanistan started it, the incompetence of the way the pullout went from Afghanistan, but a big part of this, I, I talked to friends, Lloyd, that are not even that uh, political, and, and friends that I, I think I always thought at least were more moderate than I was, and they're like fire-breathing anti-woke people now. There is there is a majority coming together in this country that's been radicalized by this stuff in the last two years, Lloyd. Well, we saw in the 2020 with uh, congressional races. Yes. Uh, that you know told you all you needed to know. And this is a story that was com- you could see it coming, but nobody wanted to report it. Certainly in the mainstream media. Uh, I, I, I can't say I watch Fox to know this, but certainly the mainstream media, the liberal media, uh, that the whole, nobody wanted to report, well, there could be a backlash for George Floyd that's going to wind up helping the Republicans. Uh, but that's exactly what happened. Uh, it, so if I remember watching uh, MSNBC, and again, I like to watch MSNBC, not because I'm a flaming liberal, but I like to watch the extremes. I find it somewhat laughable, uh, and I'll watch Tucker Carlson for the same reason on the right, because I like to just see, you know, how things are on the margins. Well, MSNBC tries to pretend they're mainstream, but they're really super left. They only report stories that they want. But I remember watching Ali Velshi. He was a very good reporter. I spoke with Ali. <clears throat> but he had the misfortune of being in Minneapolis. And I think it was Carlson actually pointed this out, where there was a building on fire yeah. from, I guess, another night of rioting. And Velshi's going, it was a peaceful night here in Minneapolis. Yeah. And 
if that is the kind of thing that just did in the Democrats to the point where you watch uh, people coming on MSNBC defending looting. I mean, not just, right. uh, uh, oh, well, these are things and things can be replaced. I mean, you talk about just not reading the rumor overreach. Maybe that's the word. Right. And that you could, two things can be true at the same time. You can hate Derek Chauvin and what happened to George Floyd and still say, wait a minute, this doesn't give license to yeah. burn. And I think Biden actually, to his credit, walked that tightrope. The problem is no one of the Democrats did. Well, and it's very interesting, too, because going back to that uh, point, uh, and, and again, uh, I, I watch uh, some MSNBC and CNN. I'd rather watch stuff that I blatantly disagree with than I don't watch anything Fox News because it's all a caricature of what people like me think. As somebody with a brain, I'm not going to sit here and watch bumper sticker, mouth breather type crap that's supposed to represent people like me. That doesn't represent people like me. I have a brain. I don't, you know, speak in, in, in just this bumper sticker jargon like they do. Uh, so I, I watch those channels as well. CNN. This was like for weeks in June of 2020. I, I used to refer to it as the pregame show for Riot Night in America. They would have these panels on. Yeah, they'd have these panels on before the nighttime protests and listen. And I understand that. I understand that a lot. I'm willing to make that distinction. A lot of people were peacefully protesting. But the media whitewashed the degree to which there was anarchy and violence. Downtown Cleveland, I'm here to tell you, was completely torn up one of these nights. It was that weekend when the whole country kind of got hit. I think it was Memorial Day weekend. Every city, New York, Philadelphia, they all got it. So, and, and badly. Uh, they, they tried to keep it under wraps the best they could. Right. Uh, they suppressed they it, and everybody it. knew they suppressed it. And that was a sure. thing where it, it just, that, that fed into the backlash. And, and again, and this is a thing of where, again, I'm just, I'm just so jaded. I don't really spend much of my time online or even offline just complaining about things just because it, I mean, I'd go out of my mind if I was just complaining about things every day. But like I said, I'm hearing this from friends that were, that I either consider to be apolitical or that I figured deep down were really kind of moderate. And these people are all sounding like Attila the Hun these days on the whole thing of wokeness, uh, political correctness, the same thing of our Cleveland Indians changing their name. I mean, that pisses me off, but, you know, again, it pisses off a lot of people. It's symbolic of this larger kind of a thing, this shift in our country, and that's the whole thing, is that this this shift, and it predated it. I feel like a lot of this kind of stuff, a lot of the wokeness and everything like that, I think kind of goes back to the Obama years, and I remember, this was early in the Obama years, there was a sitcom that I really enjoyed called Outsourced. And it was about a call center in India that an American guy went over. I do and went, remember that show. Was that Fox? I think I do remember that. It was that. NBC. And Lloyd, I, oh, it, NBC, yes. okay. I loved it. It yeah, was it was funny. You were correct. It was not making the Indians the butt of the joke. It was a thing of where it was sort of an equal opportunity thing as far as who would make. But the American guy was the butt of the joke really more so than anything else. I remember the thing went off the air after a season largely because it wasn't the climate for it. And it was like, I remember thinking, that was in the last year or two that you could have even conceived of making a show like that. There's that cultural shift that's happened in the last 10 to 12 years. And that's the well, thing, Lloyd, now, right now. I think the backlash goes further back because it's a thing of where the culture has lurched leftward and, and sort of left the people behind. People have feel in large part 
like this is all, even if they agree with some of it, that it's moved way too fast for where they're at? Well, I'll actually go the other way on you. I'm not disagreeing with what you said, but I think the real problem in political correctness came probably with Harvey Weinstein. The Me Too movement okay. just, to me, set it into uh, on, on steroids in terms of political correctness and probably ruined the Democratic Party in the process, uh, not just because a lot of the the, the villains were Democrats from Harvey Weinstein to the, to the latest like Andrew Cuomo Absolutely. and Al, you know, Al Franken when they started devouring their own. That's not even what I'm getting at. What I think the problem was Republicans were smart. They understood to, to appeal to men, we're going to let boys be boys. Right. That you couldn't be, you know, to the point where men were startling, you couldn't compliment a woman on her appearance because, ooh, you know. And it was just that over. It's always going to be a little flirtation between men and women. That's the way it's been uh, from the day the earth was formed. Right. From Adam and Eve. So, yes, there's a difference between being a creep, but also some good na- good-natured cocktail party flirtatious banter. I mean, right. You know, whether it be the rap, but that was... And so you talk about uh, a rebellion. I think that that's also one of the reasons that men love Trump. That yeah, you know he could be he could be crazy, uh, but the fact that he was so politically incorrect that he could have his fun with the with the Playboy models. You know there was a certain rat pack aura to him that men can be men, boys can be boys, and the Democrats became the party of emasculated men. And I I will I've said this to my liberal friends, they haven't totally fought me on this issue. That that is the funny part to the point where uh, that Tara Reid try to say that Joe Biden was doing so. Believe it or not, that may have been what finally ended Me Too for the Democrats. That may have been the best thing that ever happened to them. Yeah. Which I haven't heard much since then. Well, you know, you're right and about that. The Cuomo stuff. Oh, it's been, yeah, outside of Cuomo, you're right, it's been quieter, I think. I can't think of too many other uh, major scandals with politicians uh, or, or even other major uh, non-elected Democrats like Hollywood types or whatever. I can't remember too much else that's happened since then. It's kind of run its course, I think, again, overreach. Well, that is, you know, again, I will say, I'm, I'm glad there was accountability for the people that were legitimately creeps and stuff like that. When you get into Harvey Weinstein and that kind of stuff, I mean... We're not defending Harvey yeah, I mean, this, I do have to say that. Yeah, 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 and that's the thing. I mean, I think we're, we're both in agreement on this, is that this took down a lot of people who deserve to be taken down, but you're right. This the, These things always take on a life of their own, and where it veers from, from where it went initially... Uh, it, sometimes it'll go in directions, and again, and we're more we're more or less talking about this as analysts right now, as opposed to whether we agree with it or not. As analysts, yeah, we're not it did. We're looking at almost yeah. like we're the old, the old days of the Jimmy the Great, just putting the odds, trying to figure out what's going on yeah. here, who's going to win, who's going to lose. Yeah, we're, we're calling balls. We're calling balls and strikes because I, I I definitely have some friends. Uh, that would be wagging a finger at me if they thought that I was, uh, you know, putting the bad mouth on uh, men having to be accountable for that kind of crap, and I'm not. But the whole Me Too culture, yes, I think that has redounded uh, negatively on the Democrats. And it's a thing where, again, uh, everything that is being done right now, and, and this is a thing where, again, you, you can't fault Biden for at, at every opportunity here trying to bring up Trump and whatever. And by the way, and he is right about that, that Trump being out there does make it harder for any Republicans uh, to collaborate on any kind of legislation. And I, I've been a guy going back to the Obama years saying, uh, as somebody who was almost uniformly 
you know, opposed to Obama's legislation, but like, hey, if there's a if there's a chance to water it down a little bit and do a little less damage to the country, why wouldn't you want to do that? But then you don't look as pure, your bona fides, you know, in a primary, don't look as good, whatever. And I don't consider that that makes me moderate. I know you define as moderate. I define myself as pretty hardcore. But to me, if you can water down some of the damage being done, but the Republicans, by and large, aren't doing that because of Trump. But it's a thing where everything that is happening to Biden right now is, you know, it, it is in the wake of everything with Trump, with the pandemic running completely out of control his last year in office, the January 6th stuff uh, and his role in inciting it, this entire uh, alternate reality of where the last election was rigged, which, again, in every election, you got some shenanigans around the margins, whatever. But nobody has shown any kind of credible evidence here. And this is where you're left with talk about ghost satellites from Italy and the ghost of Hugo Chavez uh, controlling it from Venezuela and the great beyond. Of all this kind of crazy, crazy stuff, the anti-vaxxer stuff that has infiltrated even mainstream Republican politics at, at this point, in spite of all of this, Biden is coming apart at the seams, 33% in the polls. So well, focusing it back on, on Trump, that's all he's got. But that may be enough, not in 2022, but in 2024 if he draws Trump again. Well, Ian, he's not altogether wrong on these points. The vaccination thing to me is uh, just something. We, we should be out of this pandemic a lot better. Yes. Like only 62% of Americans are vaccinated. Can you imagine if this were Jonas Salk, make polio great again if there's social media around and Fox News and all these other crazy networks. I mean, this is follow the science. That's what Republicans used to do. Follow the facts. Follow the science. Be patriotic. I mean, whatever happened to the days of Everett Dirksen, LBJ, Ronald Reagan, and Tip O'Neill, that's when this country was great. That, yeah, okay, maybe we're not happy with the president, but at least... You've, deals get done. That's what makes America great. We're, we're a country of businessmen. We're a country of deal making. And now we've become a, a zero sum game. You know, if my side's in, we have what we want. We don't care about you and vice versa. And that's not patriotic. That's not good for this country. Yeah, and that's the thing is that you, you can advocate for your political party, for your ideological side, whatever it's going to be, uh, without it being that kind of a straitjacket. And the funny thing is, is that. And, and again, this is one of these things where this is uh, more than a little bit convenient, I think, for Joe Scarborough, because he doesn't want to admit that he's gone left uh, to whatever degree, but he likes to act like he's still, you know, conservative and it's Trump. He likes to call Trump a New York moderate liberal or a moderate Democrat. The funny thing is, in some ways, Lloyd, and for as much as I know you think of Trump as being a right-wing lunatic, as somebody who kind of is, He's not. I can tell you he's not because I am one. Because here's the thing, he was a he was <laughs> no, a big. I said Trump was a uh, right wing lunatic. Well, I, I'm just guessing that you might say that based on what your, your your position is. But a lot of people think that he is. But here's the thing, though, it's everything today is culture war. If you're looking at a culture war, I'm a policy guy, dude. I've always been a policy guy. And that's the whole thing here. Trump was a big spender. Yes, he was conservative on abortion and with the judges and everything like that. I'll give you that. But the areas in which Donald Trump was demonstrably very much to the right are few and far between. But everything is viewed now through the prism of the culture war. And if you're owning the libs 24-7, then you're a right-wing lunatic. Uh, which is an insult to right-wing lunatics who actually care about policy and who actually, you know... So it's, it's one of those things where 
you know, Scarborough's got it partially right as far as what Donald Trump is, because Donald Trump has not deviated from being the moderate New York Democrat that he was all these years. He's changed in some ways, but in a lot less ways than most people think he has, substantively. Well, I, I, I think one of Trump's problems is not even Donald Trump. I think his cabinet came off like Batman villains. Yeah. Like really, that had a lot to do with the perception of Trump as opposed to how Trump really felt. Right. Plus, one thing I know about Trump, uh, being a Queens guy that he is, uh, I've watched him, I've spoken with him many times. He loves an appreciative audience. Right. And liberals weren't being that appreciative audience where conservatives yeah. were. So, you know, that's that's just his training in entertainment. You go where the marketplace was. So, yes. I'm not as anti-Donald Trump. I mean, I disagree with some things on his presidency, but... Uh, you're not going to see me here as this knee-jerk Trump hater. I, uh, I, I just I'm more disgusted with the Republican Party not trying to say, okay, he had his four-year run. Yeah, we get it. The, the reason he carries on about the election, I guess he knows it was. I, I really think in his heart he knows it wasn't stolen. And it, right. It's that losing is bad for the Trump brand. If you watch The Apprentice, it was all about winning. You know, there was no room for second place in The Apprentice. That was right. the Trump image that he's selling. I right. get that. And so I don't even take it, I'm afraid, but others aren't on the joke, and this is why we're still having all these crazy voter suppression, crazy, that's not going to help the Republican Party in the long run. It, it, you know, it's funny, yeah, we may like Trump because he was a strong guy, and there is a, there is a market for strong men in this country, I, I certainly can see that, but it's hurting, Americans deep down like democracy, we like competition, we like fair umpires, that's why we love our sports. But if we're not going to have that, that's bad for our political system. Well, and here's the thing, too, is that, again, both sides are definitely playing politics on uh, the issue with uh, the vote and everything like that. Republicans, I I've been saying this all along, you want to have the high moral ground, you focus just about 100% of your efforts on you must show ID at the polls. And by the way, if you're going to do it in good faith, you make it easier for people who don't have driver's licenses to get that, because that's something I've exactly. learned. Exactly. That's that, fine. Uh, you know, exactly right, Rick. I've never been an anti-ID person. Look, you can't get on an airplane without showing an ID. Yes. This is, you can't buy a liquor. So even if you look like you're 100 years old, you still have to show an ID. Right. I get all that. I'm, uh, right. But you're right. At least let's play fair here and then say, okay, you need to get an ID where we're going to open up more offices so you can get it so there are no excuses. Yes, exactly. Like the way we've done vaccines in this country. One thing I will give Biden that he's not gotten the credit for, maybe it's been forgotten. You know, a year ago, we were, you had to spend hours online to try to get a vaccination appointment. I yes. mean, people were going crazy. Yes. Now we're actually paying people to take the vaccine. Please come, we're here for you. Exactly. So that's a success story that has not been reported. And unfortunately, because you have this perverse anti, and one thing I'll say, Biden's right on this one, anti-patriotic vaccine, vaccine movement, not to President Trump's credit, he said, you know, with Bill O'Reilly, who I actually miss very much at Fox, not only did I get the two shots, I got the booster. He did it, and yet this is still a controversial issue. Well, also, too, and, and he's trying to play holier now on that, he ducked the issue himself for a long time. He didn't want to talk oh, about it. He was afraid of pissing off his supporters. And, and now, at this point, and here's the funny thing, it may backfire on him, because Ron DeSantis is suddenly trying to use that as a wedge between Trump and his base, uh, because DeSantis is basically running around going, I'm crazier than Trump is, vote for me. So we'll have to see how that whole schism plays out. You know, you know it's an act, though. The problem is Trump is authentic. You know, one yes. thing, when Trump acts crazy, whether he is or not, people are more likely to believe it. 
Yeah. When Ronald, I went to Harvard and Yale, and I was a top-notch Navy guy. Right. You get the feeling it's pandering. It really, I sense that it's not going to pass the authenticity test. I don't think it's going to either. And, and again, and this is where Biden, next time around, would be very fortunate, more fortunate in his choice of, of Trump than DeSantis. But even DeSantis uh, it would be a lot more vulnerable in a national election than a lot of his cheerleaders would have you believe. But this is a whole thing here, too, is that, again, you point out during the 2020 elections, uh, with Congress and everything like that, foreshadowing what happened in 2021 with Glenn Youngkin winning the Virginia governorship and uh, the Republicans almost capturing the New Jersey State House out of nowhere, that this movement was sort of taking effect. The, the backlash to Biden was almost starting to come together before Biden was even in office because here's the whole thing. My, the lesson that I learned from the 2020 elections was because down ballot, and I think a lot of folks were assuming that Trump was going to lose. Basically, Trump's message, the best parts of Trump's message, and there are some things I find salutary in parts of it as somebody who has been a Buchanan guy in the past and everything like that, America first, whatever. The parts of the message uh, that are not as you know poisonous, the ones that are better on policy in my estimation, that message works. And that's a message, and that's part of the glue of this anti-woke thing that I'm talking about again here, that this is a thing where, you know, you had the New Deal coalition in this country that lasted up until we talk about Jimmy Carter again, Joe Biden's choice for president in 76. Jimmy Carter presided over the very, very end of the New Deal coalition after a couple of decades. And this is a thing where Biden, I'm almost wondering in the eyes of history, if he is not presiding over the future, you know, here, the anti-woke coalition, something that could be to the Republicans what the New Deal coalition was to the Democrats. That's worth keeping an eye on. Well, that's something that Biden, as a pragmatist, will pick up. And don't forget, you still have guys like James Carville in that party and David Pluff and some of the other uh, pundits who I do see on MSNBC who are, uh, would agree with everything you said here. Because the name of the game is winning elections. Republicans learned the hard way in 2010. Yeah. Winning primaries with your crazy candidate and then not winning a general election is as good as winning the uh, Grapefruit League or the Cactus League uh, uh, championship. It means nothing when it really counts. Yeah. And by the way, you mentioned 2010, and there was something I said on the show that I think probably sounded crazy that year. But I think history has borne me out on this. And I actually think the last year uh, really has done so. And that being in 2010, when John Boehner won the Speaker's gavel, I was sitting there going, Ugh, you know what I really wanted? I really wanted Nancy Pelosi to come back with a one or two seat margin because they won't get anything done and she won't be able to blame it on anybody. Because I remembered the way that uh, uh, Clinton got reelected running against the Republican Congress. Sure enough, Obama had uh, his uh, his beautiful target in mind here. It was the Republican Congress, and he replicated what Clinton did in 96. And I'm looking at this now. For, for as much as I was in despair at the Georgia Senate uh, results at the beginning of the year here and the way that Trump absolutely tanked that election for the Republicans by sowing all this doubt in the election uh, integrity and everything like that, in the end, uh, again, Biden got through and spent a lot of money and whatever, and I think greatly contributed to this inflation deal. So in the short term, I think it was bad for the country. But I think longer term, much worse for Joe Biden, much worse for the Democrats 
because they're trying to point fingers at the Republicans right now. And yes, the Republicans are hanging together and filibustering everything in Senate, but the average person doesn't understand that. The average person just looks at it and see, it says, you have majorities in both houses and you can't deliver. And for, they can talk about Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema all day long, and that is not going to penetrate to the average voter. They are stuck having this quote-unquote majority of 5150 that's not a majority at all because it's not an ideological one, especially with Manchin. Sinema is more liberal, but, but Manchin especially is not temperamentally or otherwise very liberal. So this is a thing where I think it's almost be careful what you ask for because Biden wouldn't have wanted to have Mitch McConnell as his chaperone, I think, as Senate Majority Leader, but this is the poison chalice of expectations. You have Pelosi and Schumer, who the public thinks should be able to get your agenda through for you, and now you're hitting roadblocks all over the place. Well, I think it's one of the Democrats' biggest problems, and not believe it or not, uh, Biden's unpopularity. I think mean, Chuck Schumer is a guy who goes under the radar uh, for as a, as a problem for Democrats. I mean, uh, uh, he's my, my senator here in New York, but there's something comes off very weak, to use a Yiddish term, very schnooky about him. It's just... You know, if I were the Democrats, I'd say, get me John Tester. That's who you need, you know, a, right. a macho guy. Right. Uh, and, and yet, if I were to say, I would be, you know, I, my, 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 my lefty liberal friends would be laughing at me. Ah, oh, you son, you can't have John Tester. Well, that's what you need. You need that kind of, maybe that Marlboro man for the Democratic Party. This is uh, the yeah. response to the whole Me Too stuff. Yeah. That's a problem for them. I mean, you know, I think it's funny. I think Pelosi gets vilified needlessly a lot of ways. You know, for a woman who's like in her 80s, she looks pretty good. She's sharp. Uh, she's no wimp. And yet, I think Schumer flies under the radar screen. I never quite understood that from both Republicans and Democrats. I agree. And I think part of it is the whole San Fran Nan thing. Uh, that she's a little bit easier to pigeonhole as far as being more radical than she actually is than Schumer, uh, who was really a Wall Street Democrat the whole time. So you're right about that. Uh, but I, I, I want to go back to, we talked about before and after, uh, uh, during the, one of the defining moments, uh, again, during the campaign, the George Floyd thing, because I think that pushed Biden substantially left. The before and after moment of the presidency, because when we're sitting here talking about things being a disaster for Biden and being 33%, and I think it was the Quinnipiac poll, the before and after point was Afghanistan. And I have to say, and again, as, as an America first guy and everything like that, I, I have to eat some hungable pie on this because uh, I was in favor of a full pullout from Afghanistan. And I have to sit here and kind of question on this because, again, the, I mean, the Biden administration didn't handle it well, but it's one of these things of like, wouldn't any kind of pullout have necessarily led to that? I, I'm, I'm unconvinced that there was a way to do it substantially better than what it ended up being, which was a national humiliation on par with the fall of Saigon and something where, again, they ran on the whole thing of like, this is the, this is the best and the brightest coming back. This is the restoration of competence post-Trump. This is the people here, you know, we're, we're the men in the gray flannel suits, we're going to get it done. Well, you know, and also, you know, some, you know, women with purple hair and everything like that, right? Because it's Democrats, you got to be diverse, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, they ran on competence, maybe it's boring, but it's competence, and that, they were seen the way they wanted to be seen the first six or seven months, and the before and after point is Afghanistan, which they've never recovered from, which is remarkable to me because you talked about it before with Jimmy Carter. 
The hostage crisis is the only thing I can think of in the last several decades when there's been a major foreign policy fiasco. Okay, and Bush with the Iraq War, too. Uh, but that was a more obvious one. I mean, it's a war that went bad. Of course he's going to tank in the polls. But it's very rare when, when we don't have a lot of skin in the game in this country for something like that to be such a sharp turning point in there. We didn't have a lot of troops that were still in Afghanistan, but it was the national humiliation. At the end of the day, as you said, the Marlboro man. We don't like to see ourselves as the pitiful, helpless giant, as we were described in the 70s. Uh, and, and that's where, again, you know, Biden has not recovered from this, and you have to wonder through the rest of his presidency if he's going to be able to. I mean, in 2023, obviously he's going to be running sharply against the Republican Congress that's going to be investigating him on every front and stonewalling everything that he tries to get passed. But I mean, we may have seen the most effective part of the Biden administration in its first six or seven months. Most administrations at least get a year and a half. As far as Afghanistan goes, Biden's biggest mistake was obsessing over September 11th, like yes. the 20th anniversary. Yes. <clears throat> that was a, you know what he could have easily just quietly did what he did, get the guys home, maybe a few. And I don't, you know, it remembers the old Vietnam days where we're going to have de-escalation. We'll bring home, <clears throat> you know, 5,000 a month. And you know what? Then the Taliban will take the country over. But at least we got our guys out safely. We were able to get some of our people who helped us out. That was the biggest mistake. I don't know. Who in that White House didn't see that? Well, wait a minute. Maybe we don't have to live and die with September 11th. Let's slowly, quietly, and you know what? You gave it signal to the Taliban. They're a very patient group. We just want to get our people out. We'll get your pains of the next out of here. By uh, the spring, it'll all be yours. You know, uh, enjoy. I just don't, I'm surprised he didn't, that that didn't happen. That's true. That That's an excellent point, that the timetable of that. That was one mistake. That set off negative momentum. There's no two ways about it. Uh, I think that Biden has been, believe it or not, a, too much pussy footing on the non-vaxxers. Uh, I know that we, this country, we're to freedom and this and that, but the fact is, if we want to get our economy going, we want to live our lives, get, be able to go to a press box, be able to go to an indoor basketball or hockey game without really sitting and worrying or having our masks on, get vaccinated. That's been proven. And yet, he's afraid of, you know, like you mentioned about the New Jersey governor's race. Nobody will ever see a vaccine card in that state again because of what happened, that close race. And that is one of the worst things that could happen to us as a country as a whole. It, it is. It is. And it's a thing where, uh, again, uh, as as much as, and again, you know, I'm somebody that, again, on on paper, you know, you would expect to vote uh, Republican in just about every election. Although, again, I, I voted third party in the last couple of ones here. I, I took I took great fun in 2020. It was a fun way to stick it to the Hillary people also when I would describe my Joe Jurgensen vote as I'm with her. And that was always a lot of fun to that raise. Was, that's very good, the Joe Jurgensen and Spike Cohen. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And that, boy, uh, things would be a lot different in this country if we had Joe and Spike in office, I'll tell you that. But this, <laughs> this is one of these things where, I, again, I will be glad next year to see that Pelosi's not going to be speaker anymore, but Schumer's not going to be majority leader anymore. But it's not like I'm actively sitting here rooting for Republicans, even while I'll be pleased at the outcome, because, as you said, and, and yeah, we're both intellectually honest here, we try always, all of us, to be on this show. The Republicans, again, for pushing the anti-vaxxer, anti-mask stuff, the lies about the last election, uh, the lies about January 6th, which, which was 
violent and was all of these things like that. Uh, the fact that, again, Trump screwed the pooch and, and basically tried to sweep COVID under the rug most of his last year in office. Yes, he did push the vaccine thing, which he belatedly takes credit for. I give him credit for his role in the expediting of, of the vaccines, but everything else he did was shameless, making the, the masks a culture war, you know, acting like you're a puss if you wear a mask, all of this kind of stuff. He has massive blood on his hands. A lot of these folks have blood on their hands. DeSantis on down the line, and the Republicans are going to benefit despite all of this. It's just, it's incredible. Yes, but you just mentioned something. What are they going to do in 2023? open up impeachment against Biden. Yep. If I were Biden, I'd say, bring it on. This is the best that you guys can do for me. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I mean, this is how, and they don't even care if they win or lose. I think this is all, whatever it would make Rupert Murdoch and Fox happy for ratings, almost trumps getting winning elections. That's how sad it's become. It, and maybe the same thing for MSNBC, too. They'd much rather see their guys being pure that actually win elections. Well, and I will say, you know, as somebody who is a big fan and enthusiast of the uh, HBO show Succession, truth is actually stranger than reality. The political world they conjure up on that show still can't hold a candle to what the actual 2020 election was and everything that we've got going on here uh, subsequently. And that's the thing here, too, is that, it, again, people looked at this, I think, with Biden as, you know, he's going to come in, he's going to restore competence, he's going to, there were a lot of folks, you know, like yourself, a lot of moderate Republicans and everything like that, I may not agree with him on all of these issues here, but uh, he'll come in, he'll, he'll, he'll get things back going in the right direction. And, and again, and this is one of these things where uh, I know the, uh, the Lincoln Project people and everybody else didn't want to believe that uh, Biden was going to go ideologically left. Like I said, if you looked at his history, Joe Biden has never been a man, I'll say it again, who's gone against where the center of gravity in the party was. This was all predictable, everything that he was saying during the campaign, uh, you know, even, you know, to, to Democrats of like, well, I want to be a figure who's known for boosting the next generation of Democrats, whatever. All of those are substantially to the left of him. I mean, he was saying all these things. He was pandering to the left flank at every point here. And uh, so a lot of this well, has been predicted. Rick, on one, on one thing, the okay. one thing I, I do want to defend Biden on Go in ahead. terms of the pandering issue. I okay. want to say this. Let's think about what happened with Hillary versus Trump. Yes. What was one of the leading storylines after the election was over? How the left, the Bernie people stayed home, so yes. voted for Trump. That was the difference. And uh, uh, you have the Jill Stein stuff. You think about all that. That may have been the reason that Biden didn't want to have that storyline be the story of 2020, that the Bernie people stayed home, that the young people stayed home. They were not inspired by old Joe. Uh, that, well, they cast a vote for whoever the new, uh, the new Jill Stein was going to be as a protest. They didn't want, he didn't want these Susan Sarandon storylines. Okay. That's only I do want to say in his defense in terms of electoral strategy. Okay, but here's the thing, though is that if you look at cycles in this country, what happened in 2016, especially with Jill Stein, was very comparable to 2000 with Ralph Nader. And that's the thing where when Democrats aren't afraid of anything like that, no Democrat thought that uh, Trump was going to win the election. So that was a thing there, too. They could appear, appear to be blasé. In 2000, I think a lot of them probably didn't believe George W. Bush was going to win. The ones that weren't as fired up about Al Gore probably thought, oh, there's not a dime's worth of difference anyways. Well, you see what happened. By 2004, 
Bush hung on just because this country so rarely turns out a wartime president, but by 08, everything had really crusted, and there was no way... Yeah, well, the financial crisis, that was the, probably that... That was the last John blow. Had no luck. Well, that was the last blow, but Iraq had metastasized uh, for Bush his Afghanistan moment. Well, uh, ironic that we call it that, right? Because Bush is the one that got us into Afghanistan, but the, his equivalent of Biden's Afghanistan moment as a before and after, I think, was Katrina. Because Bush's presidency truly ended with Katrina in late 05, and he was a lame duck for about two and a half years after that. And that's a thing yeah. where. You know, so it's all where it's at in a life cycle. When a George W. Bush presidency was theoretical to the Democrats, they could be like, oh, what does it matter if we vote for Nader? By, you know, 2004 and especially 2008, they weren't going to lie down again. After four years of Donald Trump, Joe Biden didn't have to fear that his base was not going to be out there to vote for anybody other than Donald Trump. So that's where I'm going to push back on you, Lloyd, because Donald Trump was not theoretical in 2020. We lived through four years of him. It's a fair point, but you know what? You'd be surprised how many people still don't vote. It's funny, we're all talking about voting rights, so this and that. <laughs> Too many people still don't vote, no matter how dire, no matter how, uh, uh, yeah, no matter how much they have on the line to vote. It, it's still almost shocking. That, that, that's all I can say. And maybe that's why Biden was doing what he did. But your your point is is well taken. Yeah, I mean, he was he was kind of going in this direction. We had a very interesting, again, uh, our, our friend Colin Delaney from ePolitics.com, where I was going back and forth with him on the show, and I accused him of splitting hairs on this, and I still think I'm right about this, because I said, here he is saying that he's not Bernie Sanders, he's a mainstream guy. This was back during the, uh, the latter part of the campaign. I said, and he's saying in the next breath, I'm not a socialist, but I'm running on the most progressive platform the Democratic Party's ever had. I said, God, I love semantics. Yes, yes. And I said, I said, tell me where he's not contradicting himself in that. Well, you can have the most, Rick, you can have the most progressive platform in the Democratic Party without it being socialist. I'm like, dude, you're really splitting hairs here. You're really well, splitting it, hairs. You're 100% right, Rick, but let's be honest. Certain words set people off are more pejorative than others. Sure. So, Eve, you say the word socialist unless you're Bernie Sanders. Even people who are, so, who are so left will try every which way to avoid saying the S word. But progressive sounds nice. Almost, sounds, it sounds like the car insurance company. I mean, it sounds uh, right. it sounds benign. That is that that's the that's the problem. I I, I think you're we're splitting hairs, but certain words trigger better than others. That's all I can say. Exactly, but that's where I felt it was intellectually dishonest for Come Biden. On to try and act like, oh, don't try and paint me as this far-left guy. Oh, but I got the most progressive platform ever, because that's a mixed message at best. And, you know, so the, the, these signs were there all along, Lloyd. This is what I expected out of Biden directionally out of this administration. I won't say he hasn't disappointed. You know, I'm disappointed, but I'm not disappointed in the sense of I didn't expect it. Well, fair enough. Like you said, it's, a, it's year one. Some successes, I mean, like, I think we're... Uh, doing better with COVID, uh, I think that the economy, it seems like the unemployment rate is, is pretty low. Hopefully, I have the, the shelves are going to be, I seem to be stocked better. Now the question is going to be, can we get contractors? Do we start to wait six months for furniture? That's going to be the key that we're going to be looking at for 2022 for them. Yes, and the whole thing, too, of, uh, again, and this is one of these things where it sounds like the boogeyman that people talk about because for so long it was just theoretical for 40 to 50 years whenever you would talk about inflation in this country and that's been a subject where I mean I've been expecting it since the downfall the financial crash of 08 
when they started doing sure. the helicopter Ben Bernanke thing. That it, that, that it was going to make a comeback. Yes. Eric, let me ask you this in terms of issues that, yeah. again, people thought were off the table. Yeah. 2016, and now the abortion issue. We used to always think, ah, hey, you know what, Roe v. Wade, you know, whatever talk came to the Supreme Court, now that was just from your grandparents' generation. That that a settled law, even in 2016, the Hillary people tried to use that as a way to motivate the vote. And it kind of went over like a lead balloon. Turned out in that case, she was probably right. It was not that settled. And Trump got three justices on. Again, we're not looking the way we want to root one way or the other for it. But let me, do you think that that, because that's not so long anymore, that the Democrats may try to pull that one out as a major campaign issue? And here's the thing, and I'm predicting this uh, pessimistically, because, uh, again, I, I'm a lifelong Roman Catholic. I'm a Midwest Roman Catholic, hence sure. I'm a pro-life guy. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm one of these guys where I, I, I'm a hippie about the unborn, but I will say you this. You that term, I remember. And I, yeah. I'm more pro-choice, but that's okay. Certainly, yeah. where you're going with it. Yeah, like the way that some people are about baby seals and stuff like that, that's kind of how I describe myself. But it's a thing where, you know, I look at it pessimistically. I think it's going to be not decisive, but I think it's going to be a minor loser for the Republicans because here's the funny thing is that both sides are going to be putting more onto this than the substance would demand. And here's what I mean by that, because the Democrats are going to be disproportionately outraged, the Republicans are going to be disproportionately jubilant. The fact of the matter is, abortion will never go away in essentially the blue states, and abortion has already been pretty hard to get in most of the red states. So it's a thing of like, it's going to go back to the states. Lloyd, it's been a soft repeal of Roe v. Wade, I think, over the decades anyways. Uh, with this. I mean, you're seeing the Republicans really push it in Texas and places. And by the way, too, I mean, I I have a couple friends in Texas who are screaming mad about, you know, that law there. And I got to admit, I think it was pretty stupidly written, the way that you can criminalize it towards women directly and everything like that. That's stupid. You you can report who's driving somebody to a claim. I mean, it wasn't just, okay, the doctor performing the abortion. It was... pro-life guy, but you can also, and this is a phrase that I've heard, I think that this was a phrase that I'd heard about some of the flag-burning uh, laws in the 1990s, uh, putting a kick-me sign on the law. And that's kind of what it was in Texas, is the way that they went about it. Uh, again, it was it was politically stupid. It was just, you know, but, but again, the Republicans are pushing to a full-out repeal. But again, it's not like abortion, I think, was super easy to get in Texas before this. Abortion will always be plentiful on demand. There will be abortion clinics, five of them, on every street corner in California from now until eternity because it's pretty much a sacrament out there and in New York and other places like that. So it will change the lay of the land less than most people think it will. Right? I'm not saying it won't change. But it won't change as much as the public thinks it will. And that's where, again, I think it's going to be not a huge winner for the Democrats because I think there's more pro-life people than there used to be. But, yes, this for, for some of the people that count themselves as pro-life but are going to be worried, you know, that it's going to change things, you know, for the worse in their minds, there, yes, I do expect it to move the needle somewhat for the Democrats, okay. at least this time around and maybe in 2024. Yeah, okay, that was curious. Uh, by the way, where, where you are in Ohio, has that been a major issue? Because it's, you know, it, it's a reddish state, but yeah, it doesn't hit me as, it's not Texas, that's why I was kind no. of curious how. It's, it's not, but it's the fact that uh, the state has gotten to be uh, more and more, 
I think pro-life solidly so over a period of time. Not, I mean, again, I, I'm in the bluest corner of it here in, in uh, the Cleveland area, outside of, ironically, where I went to school, Athens and southeast Ohio, but that's not a big blue area. But outside of the blue areas, I, I think the, the population flight from the Rust Belt has been more pronounced than downstate. The Appalachian-type areas I don't think have been hit by population flight as much as we've still been up here. So I think that's part of what has kind of driven this whole thing of the state getting redder, is that I think you've had more people from northeast Ohio going out of state than in the other parts of the state. So I, I think it, it's, it's sort of been that uh, as we've gone along here. But uh, yeah, I mean, Ohio used to be the, sort of the bellwether of the nation, and it's really not anymore because, uh, again, you look at the last election here, Trump won Ohio pretty solidly, but again, uh, did not carry... Uh, the national vote, and uh, again, we'll have to see what happens. But my my whole thing here, just to bring everything full circle, is, and I'm, I'm going to say this now, for everything that I've said about the burgeoning anti-woke movement in this country, and something that, again, uh, however reluctant I might be as somebody who's never been an enthusiast of Donald Trump, in 2016, because I didn't think he would appoint the kind of judges I would want, I thought he was a phony, and everything like that, and in some ways, up until the pandemic, he was a better president than I thought he was going to be. Uh, he was restrained on foreign policy. He was not militaristic like the George W. Bush administration, starting stupid wars and stuff like that. It was COVID that made me decide I couldn't vote for him and I needed to go third party again because I felt like he had blood on his hands, just letting people die, doing the mask shaming and everything like that. You know, but it's a thing. I'll give him credit for his role in helping to bring together this anti-woke coalition in this country. But the thing is, even a lot of his fans see it. He has outlived his usefulness. And Joe Biden needs him, or perhaps to a lesser extent, Ron DeSantis, to be the guy to run against him in 2024. Because if you have a fresh face on the Republican side with the energy of this burgeoning anti-woke coalition behind him, uh, Biden is going to get drilled. Probably so. And that's so. I guess we both agree on that, even from uh, your more uh, more more moderate position and my more uh, hardcore uh, position on this. I have to just say here, uh, just to uh, to direct this towards you, for any of the kinder things that you've had to say about Biden over a period of time. And I realize you're just being fair here, but uh, rumor has it that one of the things you like about Joe Biden is he's always been nicer to people who write for weekly newspapers than other politicians. Is that true? <laughs> Absolutely true, and he is—he does root for the Philadelphia sports team. So <laughs> I, I, I do have to give him that. Uh, <laughs> for, well, for what it's worth, I, I, I've never met him, so I can't say what he's like in person. I met Donald Trump, ironically, three different times, and I have to say he's very charismatic, very personable, and I always appreciated the fact that I wrote for the Queen's Chronicle because he's a Queen's guy. So yes, he would tap me on the shoulder, and go, "What's new in Queens? I got to check out." <laughs> Probably still reads your columns uh, to this day. Donald Trump hater by any means. So right, right. There you go. Right. I, I just don't think President Trump was the right role for him. I mean, well, I think he's an entertainer. Uh, we got to get him a better role. Exactly. And, I, and I'm just going to clarify this here, that I know that your issue with him, and I see you commenting about him a lot on social media over a period of time, I know that it's more so been that you have seen him taking the Republican Party further down a road you didn't want it to be on, that it was more on the substance of things and everything like that. So to the extent that you've been opposed to Trump, I know it's been in that way as far as him representing a trend that you don't like. 
Well, exactly. And I'm tired of anybody who doesn't identify with every point by point, uh, like Fox News, OAN, or Newsmax being a rhino. Right. That, you know what? On some issues, I think we need more of that in this country, both parties. Right. On on some issues, I can be left. On some issues, I can be right. I think most people think that way, but we're not allowed to say it. There's no marketplace for that. Yeah. At least in cable net and cable television. Well, on a show like this, we always want to try and have nuanced uh, discussions because, again, like I said to you off air, nobody else is doing it. They've left the field to us. So we're going to do it. We're going to break it down. And like you also said prior to the show, just like how we do with sports stuff, which I got to tell you, uh, we just passed our 15th anniversary with the show. It was a time for reflection. And Lloyd, in the initial days of the show, myself and my fellow co-creator of the show, Jason Jones, I mean, that was the mission statement. Like, we want to do a show that's about everything, but do it like with the analysis of post-game sports shows and everything like that. And a discussion like this just exemplifies that. And nothing's off the table. I always love yes. how you say that. Uh, yes, yes. Nothing is off limits. Nothing is off topic on the FDH Lounge. And that is particularly true when we have our good, colorful friend Lloyd Carroll with us, longtime FDH Lounge dignitary. Don't miss him in the Queen's Chronicle every week here. Lloyd, always a pleasure. Sorry it took a while between the last appearance and this one, and it'll be a much narrower time till we get you on again. I look forward to that. Congratulations on 15 big ones, and look forward to many, many more with you, Rick. Thanks, buddy. This is where We're just going to keep this thing uh, going here and keep uh, tackling all the topics of the world as we go along. Looking forward to doing that. Looking forward to doing that with you. Thank you, Lloyd, and thank you, everybody, for joining us here for mini-episode 1434 of the FDH Lounge.